And so as he experienced humanity and he obeyed perfectly his parents and the authority over him, he was being made perfect in that he was perfect in everything that he did. And through that, he became the eternal source of salvation, being the only one who completely kept the Mosaic law perfectly his entire life. So does this description of Jesus disparage the position of the human high priest? No. <laughs> the answer is no. Not at all, actually. So he, what, he is, what the writer is doing is he's saying, here you have this high priest, and he's holding him up as an example. And then he's saying, and here you have Jesus, and he's way better because he never sinned. As we said last week over and over again, Jesus is awesome. So this resonates. This resonates, doesn't it? That Jesus is perfect. And because he's perfect, he can be a better high priest. Now, verses 11 through 14 signal another pause in the argument that Jesus is better. And you remember last week we talked about the three ways that the writer is showing us that we need to keep believing in Jesus. One of them was to show that Jesus is better. Another one is to give us warnings that if we don't continue believing, it's not going to be pretty. Well, he's coming into another one of those warning passages. And here, he, he doesn't pull any punches. Verse 11, he says, you've become dull of hearing. So this is like more negligence-oriented that we talked about last week. People haven't been paying attention. He says in verse 12, you should be teachers, but you really, you're just still milk drinkers. You're not even eating solid food. I had to ask my wife, you know, what, at what age does a baby start eating solid food? She said, you know, well, maybe, you know, give or take, you know, six months. These are baby Christians from a spiritual maturity standpoint. They had been saved long enough that they should have been teaching, but they weren't. They were immature in their faith. And as a result of that, in verse 14, it says they weren't discerning. So what we see is that discernment is learned, in verse 14, through training by constant practice. And constant practice of what? Well, the constant practice of discerning good from evil. So a mark of spiritual maturity is the ability, the discernment of what's right and what's wrong. And that's only going to come when we eat solid food, spiritual food. We're talking about reading and understanding and the, the Bible for ourselves, listening and being taught and being able to communicate spiritual truth to other people. So that doesn't mean that everyone, you know, you're not spiritually mature until you're standing in front of a classroom teaching other people. That's not what it means. What it means is the ability to communicate spiritual truth from one person to another. So all of us can do that. Let's move on to chapter 6. <clears throat> the writer had set aside Melchizedek in, in chapter 511, and so he proceeds to give another warning now. He's rebuking the readers for their spiritual immaturity. In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what doctrine does he say or you describe as elementary. There's a couple things here. Resurrection? I'm not oh, yes, resurrection from the dead. Yep, that's in there. Eternal judgment is one of them. 
Before those, he talks about repentance from dead works and faith toward God. He's talking about salvation here, like basic tenets of salvation. Like There's a building block of doctrine. And then some more practical things, uh, instructions about washing, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And he says, we're going to just leave these aside for a moment, and we'll get back to them if time permits. And then in verse 4, he has the most severe warning of the book. And verses 4 through 6 are considered to be probably the most difficult verses in Hebrews to interpret and probably a top five difficulty passage for the whole New Testament. So, what we're going to do is say, well, what can we learn here based on what the text actually says? So what are these dangers here? So let's just read the text and then we'll talk about them. Verse four, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Whew, okay. So, he says it's impossible to restore someone to repentance if they've fallen away. Yikes. That's severe. That's heavy. So what are these characteristics of someone that he's talking about, starting in verse 4? They've once been enlightened. That's one of them. Tasted the heavenly gift. Shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the one that I have really, I have trouble with. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Who, is, who, who are the people that have the Holy Spirit? Believers, people that have believed, okay? And then what's the, what's the fourth characteristic? It's another taste. Tateness to the goodness of God's word and power. So people that have been in one of those four categories and then fall away, they are in danger of severe judgment. So what's in view here is a sustained rejection of Jesus Christ, not believing. Someone would say this is apostatizing. So why would it be impossible for those, these folks to be restored? Well, in verse 6, 6b, it says you're going to be crucifying Jesus again to their own harm. You can't crucify Jesus again. He was only crucified once. He's never going to be crucified again. He only had to be crucified once. So that's why it's going to be impossible. And so these people, once they they have looked at this, approached it, and then turned their back on it, walked away, it's impossible, is what it says. And so this is harmful to themselves and to Christ's reputation, the end of verse 6. And then in verses 7 and 8, there's a metaphor about rain on the land and it, in the kind of fruit it produces. It reminds me of Jesus' teaching on, you know, by your fruit you shall know them. Some uh, challenging parts of that passage as well, but we're going to set those aside. Happy to talk about that more if you'd like later, but do you feel the weight and severity of this warning? What in the world is he actually saying? This is a difficult passage to interpret. So in looking at this and studying it, I, I found that there's like four main interpretations like that are possibilities, and other commentators have as many as eight different interpretations. 
So I'm going to go through very quickly the four main ones, and I'm going to tell you the problem with each of them. And what you'll see is every one of these views has a problem. <clears throat> so the first view is that the writer is warning true believers of the danger of not believing because it could result in them losing their salvation. Now, what's the problem with that? You can't lose your salvation. We know that from multiple other passages in Scripture, so we, we don't have time to explore that. Number two, the writer is warning professing believers of the dangers of failing to truly believe. So this would be like the mixed multitude in the, in the wilderness wanderings. Some of them were believers, and some of them were just along for the ride. The problem with this is the language of the text. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. How can you be a professing believer and having shared in the Holy Spirit? That seems difficult to reconcile. Third view, the writer is warning true believers of the danger of the loss of reward and usefulness by backsliding in their faith. The problem with this one is that impossible to restore them to repentance. I have trouble reconciling that. That seems to put this, this sin in a category of unforgivableness for a believer. Well, excuse me, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all my sin, no matter how bad it is. Number four, this one's a little bit more subtle. A writer is warning true believers of a danger that is hypothetical. The danger of failing to continue to believe. This one is a lot more nuanced, and we don't have time to really unpack it. When I first heard it, I thought, that's ridiculous. But then as I read it more and studied it more, I thought, okay, I can kind of see it. And let me just give you one, one example that maybe will help you understand it. It's like, it's like you have a bottle of poison in a kindergarten. And it has the skull and crossbones on it. It has warning, danger, poison, do not drink. But the bottle doesn't have a lid. It is Seal. It is closed. You can't get into the bottle. It's not a perfect illustration, but is it still poison? Yes. Are the kindergartners going to get into it? No. Perhaps. You know, the problem with this view is what good is a warning label if the danger is impossible? There's a lot of reasons for that. Anyway. So I'm not going to try to convince you of any one of these views. What I would like to say is, can we just take away four factors that I think we can all agree on? Number one, this is a very severe warning and therefore must be taken seriously. Number two, those that fall away from Christ, whatever that means, have reason to fear. That goes right along with number one. Number three, we must hold fast our faith. We must hang on tightly. Number four, we must warn those who walk away from Christ that they're on a dangerous path. People that walk away from belief in Jesus, we've had so many people that have come here over the years and so many that don't walk with God now. We have a responsibility to those people to warn them of the danger of the path that they're on. Now, after this severe warning, the writer immediately begins mitigation. <laughs> He's like, he immediately starts taking steps to like, okay, 
you know, lest you, you know, become despondent, here's some things um, that we can encourage you with. So in, in our second question, this encouragement that he, that he offers is based on the character of God. And I thought, that what a wonderful example. When we're discouraged, when we're fearful, when we don't understand a text, where do we go? Well, just like Peter said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. I'm going to go back to you. So what characteristic of God does, does the writer focus on in verse 10? Justice. He says, for God is not unjust. So we should take great comfort that God is just. Sometimes we think of God's justice as not being a positive characteristic. <laughs> Sometimes it feels a little heavy-handed. Um, you know, everyone fears the judge, right? This is a good characteristic of God. God is just. How about verse 17? What characteristic there? Unchangeable character, yes, excellent. Now, how does that encourage us? He never lies. That's a, that's the third one in, in verse 18. Thank you. Yeah. So, how do these characteristics en- encourage us? Just just pick one of them. Touch. Where he's unchangeable, his word and his character will never change, and his promises will not change. That's right. And I think that last part is really important based on what the text says that God's promises don't change. He gives us the example of Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham that he was going to have a son and that he was going to have so many descendants they were going to be like the sand of the sea. For 25 years, Abraham doesn't have a kid. And Abraham kept believing. Why? Because God is a God who keeps his promises. Roll that forward to the New Testament. What did, what did Jesus say to us? Believe, well, take, let me take a verse from Acts. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. There's a promise. He promised that when we believe, he will save us. Jesus said, all that come to me, I will not cast out. Another promise. So, for someone that might doubt their salvation, this is a really important character trait of God. Because if you're doubting your salvation, you're saying, God, I don't believe that you're going to keep your promises. That's actually a faith problem, right? Because God said, you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. So believing that God is not lying and that he keeps his promises is going to be part of your assurance of salvation. God will keep his promises. So be encouraged to hold fast the hope that's set before us in verse 18. And it's all because of Jesus in verse 20. So once again, the writer encourages the readers to persevere, to keep believing based on who God is and based on what Jesus has done. All right, let's move on to chapter 7, and he's going to explore further how Jesus is a better high priest. So you remember Melchizedek, who he just mentioned by name back in chapter 5, verse 11? Well, he's going to turn back to this mysterious character, and he's going to describe him in verses 1 through 3. So what are some of his describing characteristics here?
priest of God, king of righteousness, king of peace, eternal, eternal life of Jesus Christ. So let's explore that last one. So eternal like Jesus Christ. So where do you get that from, from the text? <laughs> Let me tell you, okay? All right, so you get that from verse 3. It says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So here we see this person who just mysteriously appears on the scene, he disappears from the scene, and we never hear from him again. So how does he have no father or mother? Some of the commentators think that what this means essentially is there's no genealogy written about him, so we don't know where he came from, that sort of thing. Some people take it a different direction. They say that this is a theophany, that this is Jesus Christ incarnate back then. That seems a little like stacking the spiritual deck, you know, that like you're later going to say, well, you know, Jesus is a high priest like this guy in the Old Testament, but it was actually Jesus the high priest. That seems a little weird. So... The point that the, the, the writer is making is that he, he needs to talk about Melchizedek because he was a high priest, or he was a priest that wasn't of the order of Levi. So he existed before Levi ever came on the scene hundreds of years later. So what do we see? So let's just answer the question and continue to build on his better theme then. Who does the writer argue in verses 4 through 10 that Melchizedek is better than? So not Jesus, but how, who is Melchizedek better than? He's better than Abraham. That's right. Right. So how does he prove that? Abraham gave him time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes, so the lesser gives tithes to the greater. So we see that. And he actually goes on to make the point that, um, that Levi was in the loins of Abraham in verse 10, um, way, before, way before he ever existed. So let's keep moving here. So what's the point? What's the point of discussing Melchizedek? Jesus descended from Judah, not Levi, so how could he be considered to be a priest? Verse 16. How can Jesus be considered to be a priest? He's not a Levite. He's from Judah. What does verse 16 say? Tammy. Uh, by the power of um, indestructible life. That's right. Yeah, that's it. So we see that he is... He is qualified to be a priest because he is eternal. That's what the writer is telling us. He's, he's better than the Old Te Testament Levitical priests who were not eternal. They had a ministry shelf life of age 30 to age 50. And then after that, they turned it over to their sons or nephews or grandsons or whatever. So Jesus is being proved to be better than the Old Testament Levitical priests. So let's consider what is better in chapter 7. So first of all, because Jesus is a better high priest, why do we have a better hope in verse 19? Claire. Let me just back up and read the verse. I'm sorry, I'd, for, I'd forgotten <laughs> where I was going with that. So verse 19 is a parenthetical, starts with a parenthetical. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope 
is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the better hope is Jesus himself. And this better hope then does something that the law could not do. And that is allow us, end of verse 19, to draw near to God. In the Old Testament mosaic structure, the worshiper could not get close to God. The closest he could get was outside of the tabernacle, outside of the temple. Only the priest could go into the tabernacle or temple into the holy place, and only the high priest once a year, one day, could go into the holy of holies and be near to God. In verse 22, it tells us that Jesus' covenant is better because he is the guarantor. He guarantees it. You go to, the, go to the bank as a bankrupt person and ask for a loan to buy a house. They're going to say, you know what? We don't think your credit's so good. We're not going to give you a loan. And then you say, well, here is Bill Gates who's going to guarantee my loan. You know, this billionaire. And they're like, let me be right back with that paperwork. <laughs> That's a... That illustration is too small. Because Jesus is the guarantor of this covenant. This is the covenant of salvation by faith, salvation by grace. That's Jesus' covenant. Way better than all of the do's and don'ts of the Mosaic covenant. And so why is Jesus a better high priest in verses 23 to 29? This is a great opportunity for us to add to our biography of Jesus from this book. So what are some of the things that we see here? I have like seven or eight of them in my notes. But what are some? Andy. He reigns eternally. Good. He was raised eternally. What else? He is permanent and always interceding for us. Permanent and always interceding. Will. Save to the uttermost. I love that word. Not save to the little bit. <laughs> Not save to barely enough to get over the finish line. Save to the uttermost. Way more than we could possibly need. This is what Jesus did. This is how he saves us. Is there another hand over here? Maybe it said what I already said. Barb. He's always making intercession. So when Jesus saved us, he didn't say, my work is done. You guys are on your own. He is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He's making intercession for us. He's, he's saying every day, see Sparkman down there? I know he's a problem. I know he sinned again, but my blood covered it. Every day. All the time. He offered himself once for all for everyone in verse 27, and he's been made perfect forever verse 28. The writer's not done with this comparison of the old Mosaic law to the new covenant that Jesus mediates. Let's move on to chapter 8. So why is the new covenant with Jesus mediates better than the old covenant based on verses 6 and 7? Tell me. The first covenant had faults. It did. It had faults. Wow. What was the fault? <laughs> It's okay, good. It was temporary. It wasn't permanent. That's a good one. 
touch. It was a shadow of things to come. Yeah, it was a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. We're just seeing a shadow of it. Titus, yeah. We were in it. We were in it. We're part of the equation. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, good. Good. That's always a problem. <laughs> so one of the faults is that it couldn't make people perfect. And in order to be, in order, in order to enter into God's presence, you had to be perfect. You have to be perfect. So in that regard, all these things that you've said, it's, it's the, the old covenant was weak and effective. The new covenant, it says, was enacted in, in end of verse 6. It was enacted on better promises. So, of course, that begs the question of what are the better promises? Well, let's look at our next question. So the writer quotes extensively from Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant, and he's pointing, and pointing out that, that it shouldn't be a surprise to the Jewish people that a new covenant is coming. And he gives us hallmarks of the new covenant that make it different from the old Mosaic covenant, and these are the promises. These are the promises that he's talking about. So verse 10a, let's just look at these so we had some fill in the blanks. So internalization of God's law. God's law, yeah. It says, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. 10b, an intimate relationship with God. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Hear those personal pronouns? Verse 11, and they shall teach and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So in verse 11, we see a personal knowledge of God. And then in verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So verse 12 is immense mercy from God. Seen in him choosing not to remember our sins. So... What does God forget? Well, God forgets nothing unless he decides not to remember. I forget things all the time. Yesterday at the wedding, I kept forgetting things. Like, where did I put my camera? You know, things like that. And it's like, I had other things on my mind. <laughs> God never has that problem. We're always on his mind. And we're the beneficiaries of his immense mercy. So what could be better than having God's law carved in stone? God's word written on our hearts. What could be better than standing outside the temple in worship? Well, drawing near and worshiping God in his very presence. What could be better than having sin atoned for momentarily by the blood of an animal? Having sin permanently forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And having God not remember our sins. In short... The new, test, the new Covenant is better because Jesus is awesome, <laughs> because Jesus is better. The writer now leads us to another comparison, the Old Testament annual day of atonement compared to the New Testament final day of atonement. Chapter 9 is terrific, and I feel bad that we only have five minutes to deal with it, but we'll make it work. Okay, so... First question in chapter 9, according to verse 7, 
how often did the high high priest enter into the most holy place? Once a year. Once a year. And what did he take with him? Blood of bulls and goats. It's also in uh, verse 13. So what was the purpose of the blood? Why did he take it with him? To offer sacrifice for the sins of the nation and of himself. So was this effective? Let's look at, look at verses 9 and 13. Let's just read them real quick here. 9-9. I'm going to skip the parenthetical. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect, perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So these gifts and sacrifices did not make the conscience of the worshiper perfect. Let's drop down to 13, see what it says. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, that's the contrast here, not the conscience, just the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It was temporarily effective to cover sin, but it never purified the conscience. Those sacrifices were offered as acts of faith. That's what was going on in the Old Testament. The worshiper comes in obedience to God's law and in faith offered the sacrifice. And God said, I will cover that sin this year. So now we get to see this wonderful comparison In verse 12, how often did Jesus enter, in an interesting phrase, holy places? So he didn't go into the holy of holies. He went into holy places. But let's answer the question. How frequent? Once for all. Verse 12, once for all. So these holy places in verse 12 are identified in 24. Let's just drop down there so we see it. In 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. That would be the temple the tabernacle, the holy place, the holy of holies, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The holy places that he's talking about is heaven, where God is. Why is it holy? Because God's there. So the most holy place in the temple was the one spot on earth that God chose to manifest his presence during the dispensation of the law. Man could only go in there if he were holy. All his sin was confessed. And then only a limited time under prescribed circumstances. Now, since Jesus has gone into God's presence with his own blood, we can draw near to God himself anytime, anywhere. Let that sink in. We can walk into the throne room of God anytime, anywhere. Anywhere we are. Anytime on our own, without a priest. What did Jesus take with him? Well, he took with him his own blood, not the blood of an animal. And was it effective? Absolutely. Verse 14, it says it purifies our conscience in direct contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices which did not purify conscience. In verse 15, it provides the promised eternal inheritance. In verse 15, it redeems us through the death of Jesus. So why is blood so important? So much blood. 
so much blood. I would have been a terrible Old Testament person. <laughs> I don't have, I don't, I don't do well with blood. I mean, maybe you just grow up in that environment and it's just part of life and you do eventually, but, you know, I, I don't do well with blood. Can you imagine, you sin, and you realize I've sinned, I've confessed it to God, and I've got to take a sacrifice. And you take this animal, the sin is an animal who did nothing wrong, and you have to sacrifice it, and they kill it. And you see that. There's blood everywhere. And you look at the, you look at the, the temple area where they're making these sacrifices, and the, just the, these animals have a lot of blood in them, and there's like blood everywhere, and the, and the priest has blood on him. This is a bloody mess. No more. No more. Why? Because Jesus shed his own blood. Why is all of this blood so important? Verse 22. Let's read it. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You want sin to be forgiven? You need blood. Specifically, you need Jesus' blood. So why do we have so many songs in our hymn book? that talk about the blood of Jesus? Why do we observe communion once every four weeks and talk about the cup that symbolizes the blood of Jesus? Because there's no forgiveness of sin without blood. So my encouragement at the end of the reading was to think about one of these songs that talks about Jesus' blood. We have one minute. Anyone want to know what their song was? Nothing but the blood. Good. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Anybody else? There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. What's the power? To forgive sin. That's great. Lisa. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Anybody else? We have a lot of them. All right. There's our bell. We're done. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the blood of Jesus this morning. We're grateful for the plan of salvation and redemption that you designed. That you were willing to send him to die for our sin. And that he was willing to obey. And that he lived a perfect life and he died a sinless death, having never done anything wrong. And he did it for us. And we thank you for your mercy and grace that, that by which you have saved us. Thank you so much. We thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.